This episode is brought to you by Malomo. Malomo offers Shopify brands the tools to turn shipping from a cost center into a profitable marketing channel through branded shipment emails and order tracking pages. This episode is also brought to you by Outer. Outer creates the world's most comfortable, durable, and sustainable furniture made from proprietary fabrics that are both eco-friendly and water, stain, fade, and mold resistant. This episode is brought to you by Gorgeous. In case you don't already know, Gorgeous is the leading customer support platform built for e-commerce companies. Stay tuned to hear from Alexandra Collis, the Director of Customer Experience for Princess Polly, an online fashion powerhouse, to hear how Gorgeous enables Princess Polly to manage all of their customer service channels in one place. Stay tuned for some special offers from our amazing sponsors exclusively for Steroid CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Steroid to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 93 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and today I spoke with Jordan Nathan, the founder and CEO of Caraway. Caraway is on a mission to craft well-designed, non-toxic ceramic cookware that thoughtfully raises the standards of what you cook with. When you boil it all down, Caraway cookware is easy to use, easy on your food, and easy on the eyes. In this episode, Jordan shares with us his journey from growing up in northern New Jersey with entrepreneurial parents, to selling candy to kids at summer camp, to studying consumer psychology, to moving back in with his parents after college to start his first company, Wanu, to taking his first full-time job as a brand manager for Mohawk Group, which inspired him to build a brand of his own in the kitchen space. We talk about goal setting, his go-to-market strategy, how he rebranded the company from Parfait to Caraway and how he had to repack nearly 10,000 sets of pots and pans at the warehouse that had arrived damaged just three days before launch. If you like what you're hearing on the Stairway to CEO podcast, don't forget to click subscribe to get updates on when we publish new episodes every Tuesday morning, or check us out at stairwaytoceo.com. Until next time, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Hey, Jordan. I'm so excited to have you on the show today. I've been looking forward to this interview for a while. I'm so stoked to hear how you built Caraway. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Lee. Super excited to chat. Awesome. So I know you're calling in, I think, from Connecticut right now. Typically, you're calling in from New York City. Where are you from originally? Did you grow up in New York? I uh, grew up a little bit outside of New York in uh, a town called Upper Saddle River, which is in northern New Jersey. All right. What was it like growing up there? Yeah, it was a uh, really great place to grow up. Really loved the kind of closeness to my family there. You know, we lived there my whole life. Uh, have two parents and and a brother who, um, you know, were really supportive around things like like sports and and our interests. And so, I would say nothing out of the the ordinary. But you know, really loved uh, growing up in northern New Jersey. So, what's the age difference between you and your brother? Yeah. Uh, so he is four years older. All right. So you're the youngest. Yes. Youngest of two. Okay. Got it. So what did your parents do? Um, were they entrepreneurs? They both are. Um, so my, my dad has been in the fashion industry his whole life, has a small business that helps uh, kind of boutique retail stores pick out their merchandise. And for most of my childhood, my Mom also worked with him. Um, she's more of the kind of finance accounting brains of the operation and was really great growing up being under, you know, a roof where we had parents that didn't have existing bosses or really could, you know, work around their own schedule. And, you know, both my brother and I are entrepreneurs. So I think both, you know, came out of that environment really seeking the same type of lifestyle. 
So you kind of knew, I guess, from a very early age that you wanted to be an entrepreneur. And what was maybe some of the first things you did as a kid that showed that entrepreneurship? Were you selling lemonade? What were you doing? Not quite lemonade, but actually um, at the summer camp I went to, I ran like a, uh, I'll call it like a black market candy operation where when our parents would come and bring candy for visiting day, I'd actually, instead of eating it, like most kids, I would store it, wait till everyone ate their candy and then basically sell what I had left to the other kids at camp. And so I would say that was my first kind of step into entrepreneurship. Smart. That takes a lot of like, you know, long-term gratification skills. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's making me think of that um, experiment they did with kids where they like put a cookie or something in front of them and left the room. And they're like, if you, what did they do? They said like, if you, you can eat it now if you want, but if you wait, you'll have two. And like so many kids just ate it, couldn't resist it, right? Yeah, it was it was tough. I mean, those summers we were deprived of any candy, so that was kind of like the one moment you got to to access it. And but was always excited to to kind of wait out everyone and and you know sell it after everyone ran out. So what did you do with the the cash money that you got from the candy? What was so exciting about earning that money, and what'd you do with it? Probably spent it at the amusement park trips that we we ended up taking. Where'd you go? Six Flags. Yes. <laughs> That's <laughs> probably pretty close to where you grew up, right? Yep, not too far. <laughs> oh my God, I was terrified of roller coasters <laughs> for the longest time until I was forced on one. And then I was like screaming with excitement that I like couldn't get off of it. Then I learned, okay, I like roller coasters <laughs> actually. They're pretty fun. <laughs> so talk to me about, you know, your first couple jobs. Did you have a job in high school or, or college? What were your first jobs? Yeah, nothing too much in high school. Uh, played really competitive hockey all growing up. So that was, you know, my, my main interest, you know, during my high school and childhood years. And then, you know, heading into college, I went to Colby College, which is a small liberal arts school up in Maine, studied consumer psychology. I actually created my own major. So it was kind of a mix of a little bit of business, economics, psychology, sociology, and, and math. And throughout my time there, Ended up interning for a few companies, all within kind of the startup or tech space. So I think I spent some time at a cybersecurity company where I did a lot of kind of sales work and then did a few internships around advertising or advertising technology and kind of learned data analytics and how ads are served online, which was just a really interesting space to be in, you know, just to kind of learn the foundation of, uh, you know, how most digital brands are running today. Yeah, absolutely. So going back really quick to what you studied, you made your you created your own major. That's pretty cool. What did you learn about consumer psychology that has kind of um, proven itself out, or is something that you were able to connect dots with? With you know, kind of the consumer psychology you're learning through running Caraway. I think I always had just found it fascinating why people purchase or why they choose the brands that you know they ended up buying from, and you know, within psychology, obviously a lot of factors that can influence someone from their environments to, to social factors, to personality traits. And one thing that's just a, a huge learning is really making sure to kind of test and, and validate certain ideas. And, you know, a lot of psychology principles are, are run through that framework and, you know, really understanding the consumer, who they are, why they're buying is tremendously important. And it's, it's, it's not just demographic information, which is super high level, but understanding who they are, where they are, where they're buying. Um, those are all critical things to running advertisements or, you know, marketing a, a brand you're building. And why does a consumer choose one brand over another? Yeah, I, I think it's different for every person. Obviously there are, you know, features such as price and, and design and value, but, you know, I think in today's day and age, we're seeing a lot of consumers really wanting to buy from companies that they align with from a value standpoint. And so, you know, I think all those factors really play into the mix and uh, affect someone's purchasing decision. So you had these internships in cybersecurity and ad tech. What did you do after you graduated? Unlike a lot of my friends who went into the kind of consulting or investment banking type world, or a lot of friends into teaching, ended up moving home with my parents right after school and uh, wanted to start my own company. So uh, out of school, was building a uh, startup. It was called Wanu. 
awful name, wish I could go back and change it, but was really excited about the opportunity to create a online marketplace for direct-to-consumer brands. While I was in college, I saw kind of the rise of Warby Parker and Harry's and you know, a lot of those brands that we all admire today were really at their start and, you know, seeing kind of Amazon exist, but that really being a platform for people that really just want to buy based on value or price and, and don't necessarily care about the brand. You know, I thought that was a, a whole interesting purchase cycle, but nothing really existed for these direct to consumer brands. And so wanted to create something that was a little bit more intentional and brand-based and was a all-encompassing platform that people could shop at versus going to a hundred different websites, opening up 30 tabs when you're looking for a pair of shoes and try to make that process a little bit simpler for consumers. So how did that go? It sounds like a brilliant idea, maybe a little too early for the time, right? But would, how'd it go? It was a great learning experience, I'll say. I worked on it for about a year out of school. You know, the timing was tough. I think we were a little bit early for where the kind of new age brand market was at that time. And I was out of school. I never had a professional job before. I didn't really know what I was doing, but it was a great learning experience. You know, I was basically on my own doing everything from recruiting brands, talking to consumers, trying to build a tech product, which I had never done learning. Right. And back in those days was like 2014. There was, I don't even know if like you could have used the Shopify marketplace, like that may have not existed yet. Right. It was so early. It didn't. And and the product we were looking to build, we wanted to like hook into Shopify and Magento and and all these platforms. But even that technology was so early. That was our biggest tech challenge was trying to, how do we get products actually into the platform? But love love doing it out of school. Um, I tried fundraising for that business that wasn't successful, but you know had a lot of great learnings and and super happy I did it because I wouldn't be you know where I am today without having to take the leap. I know it's painful when you go through it, right? But you look back and you're like, that was actually worth it. <laughs> it hurt at the time, but I'm actually glad it happened. So when you say fundraising wasn't successful, what does that mean? Yeah, so. Um, Went out, can't tell you how many months, six, eight months, trying to fundraise for the business, talked to probably hundreds of investors, and unfortunately, wasn't able to secure a, a single dollar in funding. And yeah, I, I think was a great learning experience, understanding how to pitch, how to tell a story, you know, how to paint the big picture. And just looking back, you know, I personally did not have a ton of professional experience or even exposure to the tech world. And I think it made it really challenging to understand, you know, what our investors looking for, what is exciting. And, you know, we were raising kind of pre-product, which for any business is super difficult. So, you know, to pull that off, like right out of school with no technical background for a technical product was quite challenging. And every investor is asking you, where's your technical co-founder? Exactly. That, That was the biggest one. And what were you like, well, where am I supposed to find one? Right? Like, yep. I, that's a hard thing to solve for when you're not a technical person yourself. It's a whole nother learning curve. Yep. And essentially, it was like, well, if, if you give me the money, I can go hire someone. But, you know, uh, chicken or the egg situation. I had a lot of that as well. I built a, a marketplace in 2000, what? Yeah, 14. So around the same time, trying to build a marketplace, all custom software. Where's your tech co founder? Like, that's a pain in the ass. So what did you do after that? You had to shut it down or what happened? Didn't fully shut it down for a while. I kept it going kind of on the side in hopes that, you know, maybe I'd be able to pick it up again, but ended up taking my first, you know, full-time job at a company called Mohawk Group. I think they've rebranded to Atarian now, but it was this really fun, exciting company five or six years ago when I had first joined that was really at the evolution of multi-brand Amazon conglomerates, Amazon brand conglomerates. And so I joined, must have been about the 10th employee there. And the, the startup was young. I think it was one or two years in and really had the opportunity to kind of put all the knowledge that I had built around advertising and, and consumer brands and consumer psychology into building my first brand. So um, at Mohawk, I had the opportunity to be the brand manager for Vremi, which was their kitchen brand. And that experience ended up launching 
something like 200 kitchen products in a couple of years and, and did everything from marketing, operations, finance, and really was a, a full kind of breadth experience of seeing, you know, how to, how each function of a business actually runs. What were some of the biggest challenges that you faced in that role? I think in a lot of ways, it was like a kind of like a mini CEO role as, a, as I would call it. And I think one of the challenges was understanding how to operate within an organization that has multiple brands, which I, I think is challenging for any organization that has, you know, competing initiatives. So that was a really interesting kind of experience to, to work under. Uh, a lot of opportunities at that role where, you know, I had a couple of years of experience and got to build a team and I think learned very early on um, the challenges of, of managing and delegating and really understanding how to leverage your team and resources to, you know, reach the goals that you're shooting for. What are some kind of takeaways that you took from that experience that you still use today in terms of the way that you manage or delegate or lead a team? Yeah, I, I think goal setting is super important. I think as an early manager, it wasn't something, you know, that I think I communicated super well in my head. I knew what we wanted to achieve as a brand, but, you know, I, I think a lot of organizations have this hurdle where, you know, the, the person leading or, you know, executive team leading has certain initiatives that maybe aren't passed down and your employees end up also not understanding how what they're doing on a day-to-day -day basis is actually contributing to that. And so fast forwarding to Caraway, you know, we put in, in place a, a pretty robust kind of goal structure where, you know, everyone at the company knows what we're aiming for from the high level, but also on a quarterly basis, what, you know, what they need to be doing to help contribute to those higher level goals. And that was something I think I, I wasn't doing early on and, and I think was a challenge, you know, that I, I had to learn and kind of overcome. And what kind of system or framework do you use to kind of manage all of that? Is, are you doing like the entrepreneurial operating system, OKRs, or what do you guys, how did you, uh, what did you implement in terms of like the system? I like OKRs just because they're very initiative focused and, you know, I think can be a good framework to look at kind of high, medium and, and low kind of goals and, and really, I think, expand across different teams, which is typically a challenge with goal setting is once you get to a larger organization and different teams have different goals, I like OKRs because they kind of all tie up to the same, you know, objectives at the end of the day. Do you guys have like rocks and stuff like that? I'm curious. What's the structure? Can you let us in? What's the difference? So what do you call the, the quarterly goals, I guess, or the annual? And then what are the kind of weekly? Can you walk us through it? Yeah. So we, we call our top goals. Um, so like typically it's revenue. Um, those are our North Stars. And then we usually have like a stretch goal, which is something that's usually really ridiculous, but kind of fun to, to shoot for. And then we kind of have five buckets that we, we normally try to tackle from kind of a high level revenue, margin, building a customer obsessed community, and a few other initiatives that are kind of like the five core objectives across the company. And then within those are the different goals for each team member throughout each quarter. What happened after being at Mohawk and, um, you know, kind of working with these, the kitchen brand, where'd you go from there? Yeah. So spent two and a half years there really was an incredible experience and, you know, was fortunate to be in a position where I really got to do everything across a brand and fortuitously was, was in the, the kitchen space as well, which I kind of learned to love. And yeah, I, th I think coming out of that experience was really interested in starting something. I wasn't sure what initially uh, was looking at a ton of different categories, but kept coming back to kind of my love for the kitchen and couldn't really shake this one experience I had in my time at Mohawk. One night I was actually cooking dinner, put my fry pan on, on a burner, um, actually forgot I left it there for about 45 minutes. I think my dad had called me and 45 minutes later, my whole apartment was filled with fumes. Um, I, fe I felt really lightheaded. I felt really sick. And my wife and I actually called poison control and they were like, oh yeah, you probably got Teflon poisoning from leaving the burner on. What do you mean? You guys got sick after you ate the food or something, or just from breathing in the fumes? Just from breathing in the fumes. So when Teflon's overheated, it takes only two, two and a half minutes on a burner for the, the fumes to start emitting. Ours was obviously on there for much longer, so it was much stronger. 
and ended up having like a headache and, and kind of like body aches for a couple of days following that. Wow. That's crazy. I feel like that has probably happened to me numerous times. I just didn't connect that dots. Right. <laughs> that's scary. I hear it all the time. I think it's a common experience and the kitchen's chaotic. So a lot of times you're not paying attention or you've got other things going on around you. And, you know, I couldn't shake this thought that, you know, why is something that we're cooking off of is touching our food so potentially dangerous and there must be a better solution out there. And so following kind of wanting to start my own business, but having this experience, you know, decided to to launch a kitchen brand starting with cookware and, and wanted the main tenant to be focused around non-toxic materials and, and, you know, implementing better manufacturing processes in the space. Uh, when I was at Mohawk, actually, probably spent a total of about six months overseas in Asia, visiting factories, saw a lot of bad manufacturing processes, and uh, really felt there was a big opportunity to make an impact. And then also just say as a kind of a, a consumer um, and being in the space, there really weren't any brands at the time speaking towards kind of a design focused consumer. You know, most brands out there, especially myself, who is a young cook and not someone who's very good at cooking, didn't really feel inspired or connected to all these legacy brands who were using professional chefs as their ambassadors and talking about bringing professional tools into the home and kind of kind of had this inkling that there was an opportunity to build something a little bit more around design and ease of use versus, hey, here's what's used in a five-star Michelin kitchen and you know something uh, I just didn't feel attracted to as a consumer. So I wanted to kind of pair that with the non-toxic you know, tenants. Yeah. It's interesting. The whole non-toxic, I guess, market of pots and pans. I mean, I didn't even think about it until I got pregnant and I was like, oh, maybe I should think about what I'm cooking my food in. And I realized it's actually really hard to find like non-toxic pots and pans. I'm like, why is this so challenging? And then if you stick to the stainless steel, which I'm assuming maybe is probably the least non-toxic, I don't know. But even then you just, I just burn everything, you know, everything burns on it, sticks to it. It's a pain in the ass to try to clean. That's pretty good insight you saw. So what are the first kind of steps you took? How did you come up with the name Caraway? My company that I had was called Wearaway. So I'm kind of like secretly a big fan of your name. <laughs> They're like related. No, I'm kidding. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so how did you come up with the name and what were some of the first things you did to kind of validate your concept? You know, coming out of Mohawk, I wasn't in a position or I didn't have capital to launch the business with any consumer product, especially cookware. There's tremendous tooling costs related to the design. You need to build the brand, the website. And my natural first step was, I, I think I spent like three weeks, I built the deck and I just went straight out to fundraise without a product, without a brand. Um, the business was actually called Parfait at the time and was a single co-founder. So really before anything, I needed to raise some capital. And started with that. That actually took, I believe, about 10 months total to close our full round and really use the time to, you know, obviously validate the idea, get people's feedback. And, you know, every check that we kept getting in, we ended up raising from almost 100 investors, which was a, a very long process. You know, just kept making progress on the brand and, and deploying the capital to preparing for launch. And so, initially just really dove in and, and kind of trusted my gut on the, the vision we were building versus, you know, trying to run some tests or make a fake website. Yeah. Is that what you end up doing? Or I'm just, I'm just so curious how, so you're telling me you raised money off of a pitch deck. It was a pitch deck and a, a lot of meetings. <laughs> oh, I mean, I know you met with a lot of investors, but still, I feel like that's really hard to do. Maybe not anymore, but I mean, how much did you end up raising? Yeah, that first round was was close to two million dollars, but you know it took ten months. It, I probably spoke to a thousand investors. I got mostly no's, and it was tough. You know, most investors wanted to see the product. I didn't even have the actual product designs to show. I was raising the money to create that. You know, I didn't have the brand exercise or the photography or any data on you know other than market data. You know, why people would choose our brand over an Allclad or Calphalon. You know, one thing I did, which maybe was helpful, maybe wasn't, but I ended up finding a factory overseas in Asia. I, I like took an off the shelf product that they had and tried to kind of apply the color or color palette that I had in my head to those products. So at least investors could kind of see the general aesthetic that 
you know, we were looking to implement because colors were not something that really existed two, three years ago within the category. Right. No. And I noticed, I don't even think you guys have black as an option. Nope. <laughs> Cause I was looking for it. <laughs> gray, gray is the closest thing. Yeah. That's the one we end up getting. <laughs> we'll have to talk about that a little later. Cause I want to know. So the name care. So, okay. You fundraised $2 million in 10 months with literally nothing. That says, I mean, A, I'm like, who are these crazy angel investors you have? Like, we need a list of these people because they are the best angel investors ever, right? They're, they went in just completely blind. <laughs> they took a big leap of faith. And I think we're, you know, hoping that my background in the kitchen would translate to this. And yeah, I mean, we, we, we got a lot, of, a lot of no's. It was a really, really tough path. I think most people in your situation, especially like six to eight months in, would have been like, you know... I don't know about this. <laughs> this is annoying, you know? Yeah, I, I think my approach in general was there's a finite or infinite amount of capital out there. And, uh, you know, I, I kind of, if it took 100 conversations to get to one yes, then, you know, I, I believed in the vision so much that, you know, I figured we'd eventually get there. And, you know, as, as kind of that period went along, you know, we, we were raising capital. So we, it, you know, kind of came in bunches over time. And, you know, with each amount that came in, you know, I would take that and hit another milestone and be able to circle back with people and say, Hey, you know, six months ago, we didn't have a product. Look what we put on paper and we're thinking about. And, you know, I think investors seeing that persistence and the brand kind of developing and growing over time eventually got us over the, the finish line. I see. Right. That's, that's the way to do it. Right. You get some cash and because typically I guess with a round, it's like you raise the round, then you close it and then you deploy the capital. Whereas I, it was so early and I'm sure these angel investors were like, yes, just get to work. Here's some cash. And then you were able to finally get what you needed at the end. But using those, using the cash along the way to help get to those milestones is probably really helpful. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. Did you know that brands like Magic Spoon, Mudwater, and Caraway get an average of 20 times the return on their investment when using Malomo? Customers track their orders four to five times before it even gets to their door. And instead of sending them to the carrier's tracking page, Malomo built a tool to help brands optimize post-purchase marketing. Use order status emails and tracking pages to spur engagement and drive additional purchases by showing new products, sales, subscription options, and other engaging content simply by being proactive in managing delivery communications. Get 30% off your first three months with Malomo today by going to gomalomo.com slash stairway to CEO. While most people living in colder climates are getting ready to bring their outdoor furniture indoors to protect it during the winter months, customers of the popular brand Outer don't have to lift a finger. After all, outdoor furniture should stay outdoors, right? Made from durable materials like all-weather wicker that withstands temperatures down to negative 220 degrees with a marine-grade frame and legs, Outer ensures your outdoor sofa will stay good as new until spring and for many years to come. So if you're preparing to bundle up this winter, go get some marshmallows to roast over the fire pit and enjoy some cozy time outdoors with Outer. You can get $200 off on furniture purchases by using the code STAIRWAY200 on liveouter.com. That's $200 off amazing furniture using the code STAIRWAY200 on liveouter.com. I am Alexandria Collis, Director of Customer Experience for Princess Polly. I'm focused on our strategy and innovation in the CX department here at Princess Polly. I have a quote and I always tell our CX leaders that customer experience is the heart of an organization and we pump the blood and deliver the oxygen to the vital organs in the business to help them thrive and grow stronger. The gorgeous platform allows our agents a seamless place to just do it all. We are really there for the customer every step of the way if they want. Our customers expect quality and efficiency where they are. So the real question is, how do you get quality and efficiency across every single platform? And then once you have it, how do you maintain it? And I believe that with the Gorgeous platform, we can do that. If you're interested in learning more about Gorgeous, go to gorgeous.com and mention podcast for two months free. Thank you so much to our amazing sponsors. I hope you're able to take advantage of these exclusive deals designed just for you. Now let's get back to the show. So... 
design. I think you guys worked with Box Clever, didn't you guys? Yep, that's correct. They're amazing. Talk to me about that whole process. So you were kind of fundraising the first 10 months and you were like getting things going and how'd you come up with the name um, and how did you get to launch? In terms of the name, you know, we, we did a big naming process, probably looked at, you know, thousands of names to start and, and ended up kind of cutting it down to our favorites. I think what we really loved about Caraway was the, uh, you know, Caraway is a type of spice that, that people use. And um, we like the connection to the kitchen, but also the shape of a caraway seed is very similar to kind of the, the shape of the, the handles on our cookware. And so we kind of like the design element tying to the, the, the word. And so, you know, also like many entrepreneurs ran a lot of surveys and uh, that one came out on top. So um, much better than parfait. And, and, you know, I think for us, it was also important to kind of convey the bigger vision that we are uh, looking to tackle. And so, you know, we go by caraway or caraway home, but, using that word home to us was really powerful as well because we want consumers to think of us as more than just a cookware company or kitchen and you know that we have aspirations to really help you throughout the full home experience. I like that you said there's an infinite amount of capital. I be- I think that's a mindset you have to have when you're fundraising. Like you have to believe that there's just so much money out there and it's true that it's actually just a numbers game at the end of the day. And if you can just like pull through those numbers and those no's, you'll eventually get funded. If it's something you truly believe in, that's a great product idea and, and, and yada, yada. You had a failed startup before. I'm wondering what limiting beliefs did you have to overcome to break through and, and believe in yourself to make Caraway happen? I think one most important thing is that maybe like results aren't always instantaneous and, and you know, success maybe can always be me- measured right away. Fundraising or building a startup's really difficult. And sometimes it takes a really long time to see the, your efforts actually turning into to revenue and, and the core metrics that we all look for. But, you know, with the fundraise, it was, yeah, it was a slog. It was really challenging. And, you know, I felt like all the no's we got were just fuel to the fire and, and eventually um, they would pay off and, you know, I think what's interesting, or I've, I've learned in my kind of time with Caraway or building businesses is just because it's a no now doesn't mean it's a no in the future. And it's really important, especially early on to be building relationships with folks who, you know, uh, even if they don't invest today, they might invest in the future or introduce you to someone or help build a cool partnership. You know, I think the, the limiting belief is just really continuing to focus on where you want to be and it's not always instantaneous, but, you know, I think the, the results will over time eventually show. Right. So maybe good things take time and no means not right now (laughs) or not yet. (laughs) So what was your kind of go-to-market strategy? You said you ran some surveys that was to validate the name that people actually like that name. And were you kind of like throwing other names out there? And this is the one that had the best response on the survey. Yeah, I think we we probably narrowed it down to about 10 names and Caraway was fortunately one of the ones selected uh, to be most popular. And, you know, it didn't go out to millions of people. It was just kind of to friends and family. Oh, okay. You, so you didn't pay like hundreds of dollars for one of those surveys to go out to a bunch of strangers? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> cool. And so what was your, you know, what did you do to kind of, or what, what, how did you think about going to market and bringing this specific product to market? We actually um, pretty early on started building a like, pre-launch kind of consumer wait list, which I think by the time we launched was quite, it was either 100K or 150K on, on our email list, which is, is quite large. And earlier on, we, we started kind of building that list, actually partnering with other brands, doing like giveaways and, and uh, email collections through different brands, email lists and that was a really successful tactic to kind of build a base of consumers who, you know, were excited to learn about the product. We kind of kept them up to date throughout the, the product development journey, um, throughout the launch journey, and really were our first kind of consumers who helped us, you know, launch. And then in tandem with that, press for us was extremely important. We wanted to make sure we could really get the word out. We launched during the holiday season, which was really important. We launched on November 5th of 2019, so right before the holidays to make Caraway a great giftable item. And then one thing that was really unique, which I think ended up being tremendously successful was 
we ended up gifting, I believe, 100 or 200 different influencers, uh, mostly in kind of the design and decor space. We kind of had this hunch that design and decor would perform better than, than foodies just because no one's really ever tackled that kind of segment within the cookware space. And on launch day, we had just this massive wave of, of social posts and stories. And it was really amazing to see because we got so much inbound traffic from the awareness that those influencers had generated for us. So how did you learn these things? Did you, where did you, did an investor tell you, like, how did you know that these kind of core, these key things would help in a successful launch? I think on the influencer side, it's obviously more prominent now. Two, three years ago was still in its early days. It's still in its early days, but, you know, a lot, a lot earlier. And within our space, there were probably five or six brands that had launched before us. And interestingly, none of them were really touching influencers at the time. And, you know, I, I'd seen brands like FabFitFun and some others who had really executed influencer relationships really, really well to a point that I was driving most of their revenue. And so we wanted to kind of get into a marketing segment that our competition wasn't in. And, you know, influencers, it, it's a tougher category than running like a Facebook ad because you have to go and build those relationships. But, you know, I think from the just the lack of competition there, we, we wanted to pursue it as a launch strategy. And then on the, the email list side, this was something that I had kind of done in my previous roles. Giveaways is a great way to, you know, give customers products, but also to capture emails. And, you know, we felt there was a really cool opportunity to try to build up this pre-launch wait list. I know Harry's did it. They got to like 100,000 and a few other brands and everyone kind of had their own tactics. And so I had done this giveaway thing before and felt like, it was something that we could use to at least build some kind of pre-launch hype. That's awesome. And so you guys have just been killing it ever since. I'm, a, I'm such a huge fan of your brand and product, to be honest. I don't ever say that really on this show, Thank but you. I am. I bought it for my husband for Christmas as a very selfish gift. And um, <laughs> I'm just like, hey, honey, here you can cook and use these. But yeah, you have, I mean... It's an, I would, I'm so taken back. Like literally, I think it was yesterday or the day before I was um, making something in the stir fry pan and I burnt it really bad. And mm -hmm. I was like, oh boy, this is the ultimate test. Cause this looks <laughs> like it went down to the bone on this thing. Right. And I was like, this is going to be impossible to scrape off. Normally those are all the kind of thoughts you have when you're used to kind of normal cookware. Right. And so I'm thinking, great, let's let it soak in the water. It's going to take forever to scrape off. And like that spot will never heal on the pan. It's going to constantly be that spot that you can't put anything else on because it's going to stick forever, right? You know what I'm saying, right? With these pants that I've had before. And so that was like the ultimate test. And of course I go to wash it and cleans right off. It's just, it was, I'm like, how did you make this? Like how, why did this not exist before? Yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> not non-sticks always a challenging material. You know, there, there's the Teflon-based products, as we spoke about before. You know, when it came to our product, we really wanted to focus on ease of use. And so, you know, when, when it comes to the, the cookware, the nonstick properties, the storage that we give with our products, you know, those are two elements that a lot of brands don't really focus on. Um, they're more worried about the price or the value or some type of fancy trademark name that they came up with to, to explain a technology. And, you know, for us really how the product lives outside of cooking was tremendously important. And so a lot of the, you know, kind of year to 18 months leading up to the launch, um, we put a lot of time and effort into the nonstick coating, but also a, an important piece of that is the education around how to take care of it, which we felt was not something other brands were doing. And so, you know, I think for our customers, we, we want them to get crazy in the kitchen and, and not be worried about having to deal with any crazy cleanup. Yeah. I probably didn't read the directions to be honest. So actually, how do you maintain these pots? What am I supposed to know? What did I not read in your directions about how to take care of it? Probably low to medium heat was the, the issue. And uh, so I had it on super high heat. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Any butter or, or oil? Oh yeah. Okay. You're not supposed um, to use it? You are, but just, just kind of like a light coating over the full surface. Cause you don't really need it at all. And I think cause I'm in such habit of using oil, olive oil that. Yeah. Okay. So noted not supposed to use any oils, just kind of a light coat and then low and medium heat is kind of all you need. 
I know you gotta try to say that to my husband. He likes to like burn everything. He thinks it's like really good crispy, you know? And I'm like, that's a little too much. That's actually called burnt, not crispy. Right. So we go back and forth on this whole thing, but our pans are super thick. So they, they heat up faster than most and then they retain the heat faster. And so it's really important to use the lower heat. And, you know, if you do make a mistake and there's a mark, it, it always cleans super easy. Awesome. And so the colors, you have these insane colors. You don't even offer black, which is hilarious. we got the silver. They're beautiful or gray. I guess they're called, right? And then you have the marigold color, which is super popular. Very beautiful. And the storing, you have these lids that go, I mean, even the lids look really cool. And the way that you store them, you can put them, I don't know how to explain it, but you put them in the little slots and you hang it on the door. So they they don't even take up any space in your cabinet. There's so many details about this, like even the unboxing experience, everything. Are you really that detail oriented? Is that what, is that all you like going in and like narrow focusing all these details to make it perfect? I would say I'm, I'm personally, I'm very meticulous and detail oriented, but, but it's something that we think is really important to the, the consumer experience. We want every touch point to be, you know, something unique and something you, you remember, you know, looking at brands like an Apple where that unboxing experience is so exciting and probably more, more exciting than the product itself. Um, we put a tremendous amount of time and effort into the packaging. You know, it's a, a, a box with no single use plastics. It supports 35 pounds of, of pots, which is no easy feat to accomplish. And when it comes to the products themselves, we really feel like design was something that was missing from the category colors. Yes, there were colors kind of before Caraway, but they were typically like bright KitchenAid reds or really like sky baby blues and things that you don't want, like shouting bright and loud on your, your stovetop. And so. Right. And no one even has a kitchen that color, right? Like I don't know anybody with a bright red kitchen. <laughs> exactly. So we really wanted to work in colors you have, you know, in your clothes or in your uh, rest of your home to b- build something that you are proud to leave out, but wasn't uh, so bright that it kind of distracted from the rest of your kitchen. How are you guys thinking about retail? Yeah. So today we are, I want to say we sell with about 10 retailers, um, everyone from Target, Bed Bath & Beyond, Crate & Barrel, Williams-Sonoma, and a handful of others. Most of those relationships today are selling through their online websites. And then we also are in a handful of stores like Crate and Barrel, Nordstrom, and, and Bed Bath today, um, soon to be growing on that list. But you know, I think different than a lot of newly digital brands, we're in a category where a lot of consumers are buying kitchenware when they're registering at the time of buying a new house or apartment at a new stage of life where they might want to be um, exploring new non-toxic products. And so um, we really see these relationships as opportunities to acquire new customers, you know, reach people at these stages, but also everyone shops differently and, and we want people to be able to purchase wherever makes them comfortable. And so, you know, our strategy is to really be, you know, I think as wide, I think as, as we can go, that fits with the brand. You know, if our goal is to really kind of remove Teflon from shelves and replace it with ceramic nonstick, you know, our belief is we actually have to physically go, go do that. And so, you know, I think part of it's the accessibility, but also it's really true to our mission to, to try to get it on as many shelves as we can. And so, you know, you've been doing this for what, like three and a half years about. Yep. So what are the biggest challenges? Like when was a moment where shit really hit the fan and, and maybe you thought, oh my gosh, is this it? Did you have a moment like that? Or what were some of the biggest challenges that you faced in building the business and how did you overcome them? We did actually have a moment like that right before we launched, right before kind of our launch date, the initial like order of inventory that we had ordered was on a boat from Asia to the US where we produce. And from that initial order that we placed, it's probably somewhere like five or 10,000 units. We had the factory grab like 30 or 50 cookware sets to ship over to the US through FedEx or UPS um, so that we could use those units to ship to press contacts and influencers. And three days before launch, we ended up getting those 30 or 50 sets. And we opened the, the, the boxes were delivered. We heard a bunch of clanging. They were delivered to our office and we opened up 30 or 50 boxes. And essentially what happened was the internal structure of the box 
basically collapsed. So all the, all the, like the pans collapsed on each other. They were dented, they were scratched, the handles were falling off. And meanwhile, we were launching in three days. So now we didn't have product for <laughs> our press or influencers. And then we had a boat with like five to 10,000 units coming over to our warehouse that we would then have to ship to consumers, but the box was a complete mess. And so um, it was a really challenging experience. We actually had to repack those five or 10,000 sets at our US warehouse and was scary. It was, it was a super challenging experience, but um, I think the second we got those boxes, we just went into like problem solving mode and we're thinking through every strategy or way to actually you know remedy the, the units we got for press. So I think we, we ended up looking for like a few good units that were okay. And we're like shipping press, like one fry pan here, saute pan there and like the full sets, <laughs> and like br brown, brown boxes with bubble wrap. It looked awful. Oh no. <laughs> Did you tell them like, Hey, just FYI, you're not getting the full unboxing experience right now. We did. We, we got a couple of complaints where people were like, Oh, is this like a return or like, is it, is it supposed to look like this? Oh God. And you're like, Nope. Yep. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so you kind of, so in those three days, were you able to salvage enough to kind of launch on time or just not in the way you had wanted, I guess, but, and then what about the customer packages? Were you like sending out the same kind of thing, these pots and pans and brown boxes that weren't part of like what you're hoping to be a, a good customer experience? Yeah. So we ended up launching when it, we were supposed to launch with units. So we ended up launching with like a month and a half ship date. So basically a pre-order, which wasn't ideal. And then we got the units. Uh, we were able to work with our uh, warehouse to, we had to unbox everything. We had, we had to like create new inserts to put into the bottom of the box. So the boxes didn't even look that great when they got to consumers, they were like opened and like dented. And then we, we put like a brown box over the, the caraway box to ship to consumers and it, it was fine. Um, we didn't actually have any issues after that with the pans collapsing or crashing into each other, but um, definitely had a few complaints from consumers on thinking that they were getting returns or a used product. And I think we, we ended up shipping, I think, early December. So we, we actually turned it around in like almost a full month time frame. Wow. But they kind of put a dent in the whole holiday thing though, right? Because you had such limited time to actually be able to deliver the product on time for the holidays. Yep. Limited time. We had to launch because it was the biggest season for cookware and we were also running out of money. I ended up raising our second fundraising round in January or February after that. And, you know, had we not had any sales, the company probably would not have existed at this point. But even limited sales can be a challenge to fundraise around, right? Yes. I mean, I, can, I know you had a story to kind of, you know, explain that, but even that's pretty tough, right? Because... So talk to me about that fundraise. You know, it was, I would say a little bit easier than the first one, but, but also quite challenging. Once again, we had two months of sales. We didn't have any reviews of the product. We didn't have any repeat customers. We were just shipping. So, you know, investors didn't even trust if the product was good or people would like it. But, you know, we had enough traction from some of those early tactics with influencers and, and that email list, which was a great source for early adopters. While we had those metrics, a lot of the kind of focus was, you know, raising capital so that we could spend money on advertising. I think the first two or three months were kind of all organic and, you know, some of those email lists we had or press or initial kind of launch momentum we had was kind of enough to get us over the finish line. All right. Jeez. And then, so do you have any, um, I guess, advice for any entrepreneurs out there tuning in that are, you know, you've already provided such awesome insight, but for anybody listening, thinking of taking a jump into entrepreneurship, what would you say? I think my best piece of advice is I would say to not be afraid to pursue your business or product in a different way than it's been done before. I think you know, a lot of times we look at other companies as references and try to emulate the path that they, they took. But um, I think every business and, and entrepreneur and team are different. And it's really important to, I think, follow what what's you think is best for your business. And just because something's been done before or nine out of 10 companies do it doesn't mean it's always the right path. So really encourage anyone thinking about starting a business to 
you know, I think really focus on what you think is best um, for the path you take. And, and just because others are fundraising doesn't mean that you have to, or just because they're advertising on uh, Facebook or Instagram or going direct to consumer first doesn't mean that you can't go to retail first. So kind of make your own path and figure it out and don't let what's currently in the market hold you back from innovating. Exactly. And, and I always like to say if, if you know, I, I think the best brands and companies are typically built, you know, uh, around doing the opposite of what most others are doing. And if people haven't seen it before, probably means there's a big opportunity there. That's awesome. And I agree with that. <laughs> That's awesome. And so I know you guys just launched Bakeware. I'm like, great. Now another thing I have to buy. Um, <laughs> what else do you have coming along in the pipe? What's, what can we expect coming next from Caraway? Yeah. So B- Bakeware is a tremendously exciting launch, um, a really natural extension to our cookware. And it's been a big hit so far, which has been exciting to see. And you know, I think as we look towards the future, our goal is to really build a full kind of home portfolio of products that support you, you know, across the kitchen, across the home that are non-toxic, that are really easy to use and also pay attention to when those products actually aren't in use. So, you know, how do they store? And so as we kind of look at the next few years or, or decade of Caraway, we, we really want to expand into the rest of the kitchen and home and, and build this ecosystem of products that, are designed to work together, designed to uh, share a similar aesthetic and support you, you know, uh, in your journey throughout the home. That's awesome. Well, Jordan, thank you so much for joining us on the show. It was really fun to hear your story and building and launching Caraway. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.